Uh, excited uh, for us to, to be in John chapter 9. Uh, we're continuing our series called Conversations with Jesus, uh, looking at various conversations that Jesus had with different individuals throughout the Gospel of John. And, and we're today in uh, John chapter 9, and we're going to look at, uh, albeit a brief conversation that Jesus has with this man born blind, really John chapter 9 is a chapter filled with a number of side and small uh, conversations that are taking place between various people. Um, I don't know if you, uh, if, you, if you have glasses or contacts. Some of you are cooler than me and you might have contacts. Um, but uh, I remember when I got glasses um, for the first time, I was in college and towards the end of, um, I think it was my first semester, uh, I was in one of those large seminar classes and I was sitting in the back with my friend and my roommate and uh, it seemed like every slide, like I had to ask for clarification, like, what, what does that say? Uh, like, I just couldn't quite make out uh, what was on the screen. And, um, and, and it was so bad, like, I didn't really know it. I didn't know how, how annoying apparently it is to be asked repeatedly uh, what's on the screen. Uh, but my friend and roommate, uh, as, uh, as a good roommate would, uh, was pretty straightforward with me. He was like, dude, you need to go home and get your eyes checked. Um, and, uh, and so sure enough, I went home and, and got my eyes checked and, uh, I didn't know how bad my sight was until I got glasses. I remember, uh, I went to school in Virginia and I was driving, uh, back from, uh, where I lived in, in Arkansas and it's a pretty long trip. I, I mean, I bet for the first three hours on the road trip, I read every possible sign, uh, that was on the side of the road, every bumper sticker on every car that we passed until eventually, uh, my roommate that I was driving with was like, thank you for informing me about all the signage that you see. Uh, I also can see it. Uh, you know, that's the thing that, uh, that I've been seeing all these things for the, you know, the past uh, little bit that you haven't. So I'm glad that you've caught up with me. It's amazing to, uh, to be given sight. Uh, it's, it's amazing what, what glasses can do. Uh, though I wasn't blind, um, I certainly wouldn't say that I was able to see properly until I got my sight corrected. Um, and today we're going to see Jesus physically heal a man who was born blind, but we're going to see that physical healing also comes with a spiritual truth about spiritual blindness. Uh, so Jesus in John chapter 9, it says as he was passing by, there's uh, in the chapters preceding uh, John chapter 9, Jesus has been interacting with uh, with his disciples as well as the religious leaders of the day during the Feast of Tabernacles. A number of things have been going on. It's been uh, some pretty heavy discussion and debate between Jesus and the religious leaders. Um, and, uh, and it says that he's passing by and there in the temple, he sees a man blind from birth. And, and what I want us to see in these first seven verses, which uh, Mason read for us, I, I want us to see the miracle and then we're going to look at the response uh, in chapter 9 verses 8 through 34, and at the very end we'll see the revelation that Jesus makes of himself. But first here we see, we see the miracle uh, that, uh, that Jesus uh, performs. And it begins with Jesus passing by and seeing this man. I just, we'll, we'll come back to this, but I, I just want to point out here, uh, time and time again throughout the Gospels, we see that Jesus sees the sick and the suffering. Jesus sees the sick and the suffering. Uh, we're going to see that the disciples, when they see this man who is born blind, who is blind from birth, 
they have a question, a theoretical question about this man's condition. Uh, But Jesus sees the man, and it appears that Jesus intends to do something. And as as I thought about this passage, and, and you think about how striking this statement is, Jesus is walking by. There are plenty of reasons that Jesus could have kept going, plenty of things on Jesus' minds, no less than the uh, the all the conversation and debate that he had been through. We find out in this passage that it was the Sabbath. No doubt Jesus would have known if he stopped and healed this man on the Sabbath. And, and in fact, the way in which he goes about healing him, we see in other places that Jesus speaks and he can heal. Here he does something that that is intentionally seen by the religious leaders as a violation of the Sabbath. He does this knowing inevitably that it's going to bring up a discussion. It's going to inevitably bring up opposition to what he does. And yet the man who can't see anything, Jesus sees him. He sees the sick and the suffering. He always has and he, and he always does. And we, we see that in verse 2, as the disciples take notice with Jesus, they ask him a question. And uh, while, while it is no doubt a theoretical question, I don't want to dog too hard on the disciples because it's an honest question. They, they ask the question, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And here Jesus takes the occasion to teach his disciples a lesson. He teaches them a lesson as it relates to his purpose and his plan, even for those who are sick and suffering. You see, in the ancient world, uh, if you were, if you're familiar with the story and the book of Job, uh, we see this question arises in the book of Job. If someone's suffering, therefore they must have sinned. Now, <clears throat> what, what we're going to see uh, it, throughout the Bible, I, I can't unpack every different passage in which this points to, uh, all sin and suffering, excuse me, all suffering, all sickness is in one way the result of sin. All sickness and suffering happens because we live in a sin-stained world, because sin has, has infected and has marred the, the image of God in, in us and in creation, we live in a broken world. We live in a world full of sickness and full of suffering. Not because it's according to God's design, but because it's brought about through sin. And it is also true throughout the Bible that we see that our sin can lead to our suffering. <clears throat> this isn't a theologian, but my mother uh, used to tell me that sin makes you stupid and when you sin you do stupid things and when you do stupid things you often will suffer i don't know if any of you can attest uh to that um i know that i can attest to that i've got some stories that i could share about some stupid things that i did that resulted in some unnecessary suffering as a result of them Uh, we know that there are consequences for our sin and and sometimes sickness and suffering can come from those things However, it's not that those two things are necessarily tied together. And the lesson that Jesus uh, uses, the occasion that's provided with this miracle that he uses to teach his disciples, he teaches them this lesson. And it's that his focus isn't so much on the reason for the blind man's suffering, but on God's purpose in the blind man's suffering. See, no matter what situation we find ourselves in, no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, God has a purpose and a plan in our suffering. You see, I think this is one thing that's radical about Christianity is that it tells us that not that we need to, we need to live our lives in order to avoid suffering, not that uh, suffering is, um, 
that there's no hope in suffering or that we're uh, fatalistic in our suffering. And if that's the case, then we're doomed to just experience it and whatever comes, comes. But it says that in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of this man's blindness, God has a purpose. And he says, it was not this man that sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So Jesus teaches his disciples the lesson to not be focused exclusively on the reason for sickness and suffering, but to ask the question, what is God's purpose in sickness and suffering in any circumstance, in any condition in which we find ourselves? Sooner or later, sickness and suffering is going to find us all. Sooner or later, it's going to touch those that are close to us or touch us. And in it, we're reminded in Jesus' lesson that He gives His disciples here that in that moment, God hasn't forsaken us. In that moment, God isn't absent. But in that moment, God has a, a plan. And now, hear me clearly. That plan may not result in the alleviation of the suffering immediately as we're about to see for this blind man. And in fact, what Jesus says when He says, we must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Jesus is speaking specifically about the work that God the Father sent Him to do in His incarnation, in His ministry, a ministry that was marked by, by healings. And particularly here in the Gospel of John, these healings are signs that demonstrate the very identity of Jesus but the work that God has sent him to do is in many ways giving us a foretaste of the kingdom, a foretaste of eternity. When all sickness and all suffering will be gone, when every tear will be wiped from our eyes. What Jesus is doing here is saying that this is coming about one day. In my coming, I'm coming to give this foretaste of what's to come, this preview of the kingdom. It's a kingdom that's going to come about in part through Jesus' death and resurrection but it won't be made complete until His return. And Jesus is, is showing here His divine power, the third thing I want us to see, His divine power and His identity through this miracle. He's displaying His glory, He says. Revealing His divine power and His identity through this work. Because as He says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. A man who has only known darkness since his birth. Jesus is now revealing Himself as the light of the world. And it says, as it goes on, that after He said these things, He spat on the ground, He made mud with the saliva, which we also should just kind of all be like, ooh, you know, it's a little gross. So that, that's the, the chosen method, right? Like I'm, I'm like, there could have been other ways that you could have done it, um, but we go with the spit and, uh, and dirt route. Um, and, and, and it says He spit in the mud, um, some commentators have noted, have noted that you don't just kind of like, you know, and get mud. You've got to like, you've got to get a lot of spit in the mud, in the dirt to get the mud. And so he does this and he puts it on the man's eyes. And he says, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sin, which was a public pool, a very large one there in the temple that would no doubt have made it known what, what had happened to this man as we're about to see in the response. But it's a pool that means sin, and Jesus has just told us that He's been 
uh, he's, he's, he must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. So no doubt a number of different connections to what's going on here. And it says, so he went, he washed, and he came back seen. Verse 1, Jesus saw him. Verse 7, the blind man came back seen after his interaction with Jesus. And in this, as I said, Jesus reveals his divine power and identity through the miracle. Later on in the response, in a moment, we'll see that nobody has seen a blind man from birth be healed. And it says that um, the, the people responded in amazement at what happened. But as I mentioned, John, as he talks about these miracles, and no doubt from the Gospels, as we look at all four of them and kind of read them uh, together, we see Jesus doing a number of different miracles. But John identifies Jesus's miracles as signs. This is the sixth sign that Jesus performs and that John notes in his Gospels. And the signs are, are, are not just about what Jesus did, but they're about what they reveal about who he is. So in his, in his miracles, in the, the things that he does, he's revealing something about his identity. And they're pointing us to who Jesus is. And, and particularly the healing of the blind is connected to the work of God. Uh, just if you want to flip back to Isaiah chapter 35 in the Old Testament, um, <clears throat> about halfway through, you see in Isaiah 35, Isaiah the prophet is talking about, um, really talking about the future kingdom uh, that God is going, when, when, when the Lord returns and God establishes His kingdom and the, the ransom, those whom God has redeemed, um, <clears throat> uh, are, are brought into this kingdom, it says, and Isaiah 35, that the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The redemption that God brings about leads to rejoicing. The glory of Lebanon shall give to it the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. And it says this, that they shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are anxious in heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Right? He's writing to His people who, who have been under the judgment of other nations. And God's saying, I see, I will come, I will deliver, I will save. Then, listen to verse 5, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then shall the lame man leap, leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. What a day that'll be when I can... Uh, join in with the mute singing for joy. For waters break forth in wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool. There's this transformation that God's going to bring about in the end. And it says in verse 8, and the highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. And it says that all the unclean things won't pass through, but those who walk in His way will be come in. And even those, if they're fools, they shall not go astray. And I take comfort in that, that, that even, even myself as a fool sometimes, I don't even get it right, but I won't go astray. God will hold on to me. No lion shall be there, nor shall there be any ravenous beast. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there and the ransom the Lord shall return and they will come to Zion with singing everlasting joy. The redemption that God is going to be, that God is going to bring about is a reversal of all that's broken in the world because of sin. And it's going to lead to all mourning being turned into rejoicing. And this is what Isaiah says is going to come about in the future that God is going to do. Now watch this. Flip back to the Gospels and the Gospel of Matthew and Matthew 11. I love the honesty of this moment because John the Baptist had been 
doing ministry. And if you recall in John chapter 1, when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he knew. He knew that Jesus was the promised one. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But life isn't always that easy. Life is a little messy. And now John has has gone gone on in his ministry and has confronted Herod and is now going to prison and ultimately will have his head cut off. And as he's there in those last moments of his life, it says that Jesus has been instructing his 12 disciples and he went out from there to teach and preach in other cities. And John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, the, the works of God that the Father had sent him to do that our passage talked about. And he sent word by his disciples. So John's disciples come to Jesus and they say, are you the one who's to come? Or should we look for another? This is the same guy who said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says, now I'm in prison and about to die. Are you really the one, Jesus? It's not going like I thought it was going to go when the Messiah came. And listen to what Jesus said. He said, go and tell John what you hear and see. Notice if you hear Isaiah 35. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You see, Jesus, in in healing this blind man, He saw the healing of the blind as demonstrating that He Himself was God. Come to deliver us. He was fulfilling what Isaiah 35 talked about. The day of the Lord has arrived in the coming of Jesus. His divine power and His divine identity are revealed in the healing of this man. And He says, this is what God has sent me to do. My time is short. And when the day is over and the night has come, I won't be able to do the work. But I've come to bring about the kingdom of God. And the coming of the kingdom will not be by force and might. But Jesus will show it will be by Him laying down His life for us and for our sin and rising from the dead. And what we anticipated that God would do at the end of time, He did at the middle of time through the coming of Jesus and His life and His death and His resurrection. And and it will be brought about to, to completion when Jesus returns at the end of time. But here He's saying, this is the work that the Father has sent me to do. This reveals who I am. This demonstrates why I have come. And the healing of the blind man, no doubt it was a a gracious and merciful deed. But it was a sign. It was a sign of who Jesus is and why He had come. He had come to redeem us, to bring about our salvation And with that salvation would come the undoing of what the curse of sin has brought about. It would it would undo the brokenness that comes from sin as well as the brokenness that comes from living in a sin-stained world. And here in a a moment as we reflect on what all of this means for us, there's so much encouragement that we can take from understanding who Jesus is. But here we see that Jesus sees the sick and suffering. He teaches us a lesson about suffering and the purpose of God in our suffering. And He reveals His divine power and His identity through healing this blind man. But then the best part perhaps of this chapter is the response that we see in verses 8-34. through 
And we won't spend time on, on all of these, but first it begins with the neighbors, all the people who knew this blind man. Uh, they, they begin to have this conversation. They're like, is this, is this a guy that we saw every day that was begging at the temple? Like, is, is he, can he see now? It says in verse eight, uh, and no, this isn't the man who used to sit and beg. They can't believe it. There's this kind of amazement and, and almost like, um, unable to believe what's happened. And some are like, no, that's him. And others are like, no, 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 that's definitely not him. Um, and the guy's like, no, that was definitely me. I am the man. He says it uh, numerous times throughout this passage. That was me. I was blind. Now I see. And they said, so what happened? And he said, well, Jesus made mud and he anointed my eyes. And he said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed and I received my sight. And they said to him, well, where is Jesus? That's my favorite question. He's like, just a few minutes ago, I wouldn't have qualified for being an eyewitness at anything. I couldn't see, right? Like I was blind and he sent me to the pool. I don't even know what he looks like. I just know the man's name is Jesus. Where is he? I don't know where he is. And so it says that they brought the man to the Pharisees who had formerly been blind. And then we get the rub that often was the rub uh, with the Pharisees, that it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Most would say, <clears throat> you see, God gave us the Sabbath as part of the Ten Commandments to, to rest. On the seventh day, he rested and he calls his people to rest. That that Jesus throughout the, the Gospels teaches that he's the fulfillment of the Sabbath, uh, that he's the one in whom we find rest. He's the purpose in which all of it points in the end. And the practice of the Sabbath is one that isn't repeated in the New Testament, but one that has wisdom in practicing because it teaches us the God-given boundaries uh, that, that, that he's given us. Uh, but the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of this day, in order to protect the law from being broken, uh, like if I didn't, it's the same way as if I didn't want my kids to go outside the house, uh, and in order to prevent them from getting to the door, the front door, I put up a gate in the hallway that kept them from the front door. The, the Pharisees put up extra fences, so to speak, around the law so that if you broke their rule, at least you wouldn't have broken the law of God itself yet. You still had to go a little bit further to break the law. One of the things they did is they said you couldn't need bread on the Sabbath, and that's the emphasis on him making mud. Most likely it meant that he had to knead it. That's how you know straining of the gnat you can see perhaps is going on here. Some believe that, uh, that you, you, are only an, you are only able to help or heal someone if their life was in danger. Uh, so, you know, if they had the flat tire on the side of the road on the Sabbath, you're like, hey, sorry, your life's not in danger. On, I got to go. Uh, this man, technically, his life wasn't in danger, they would say. Uh, and, and yet Jesus heals him on the Sabbath. You see uh, the, uh, the, the underbelly of legalism is ultimately what you see in the Pharisees, the setting up extra things that, uh, that go, uh, that are purely, that are motivated by this wanting to protect the law, but instead add to it and make it a greater burden for God's people and ultimately remove um, our own awareness of our need for God's grace. Uh, and so we see the underbelly of legalism, and it says the Pharisees asked him, uh, this man in verse 15, how he received sight. And he tells them, we hear that he put mud on my eyes, I went to the pool of Siloam, and now I see. And some of the Pharisees, now they turn to attack Jesus. They say, this man is not from God, for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. We know he doesn't keep the Sabbath because he breaks our rules about the Sabbath. <clears throat> but others say, well, wait a second. How can a man who's a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them, it says. And so they asked the blind man again, what, what, what do you say about who he is? And he says, he's a prophet. So we, we see the same thing that happened in John 4 with the woman at the well. The, 
the more this man gets questioned about Jesus, the more he's beginning to re- he's beginning to see maybe there's something special about Jesus. First, it was a man named Jesus. Now he's like, well, he couldn't have been a sinner, a bad sinner like they're talking about. He must be a prophet, he says in verse 18. And now it goes on and it says the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and that he had received a sight. So they now that we move from wonder and amazement at all of this and questioning to doubting him, he couldn't have been blind. So we'll talk to his parents. So they bring his parents in. And they're like, is this your son? And at this moment, the parents are like, we know that this is our son. <laughs> you know, like, yes, we'll claim him, right? I'm not sure what's going down here, but we know he's our son and we know he was born blind. But how he sees, we don't know. He's of age, ask him. They're like, we don't want any trouble. You ask him, he'll tell you. And it says that they did this, uh, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews <clears throat> for that they would, um, they would be put out uh, of the synagogue uh, if they confessed Jesus to be the Christ. And therefore, his parents said to him, he is of age, ask him. So now they go back to him, and this is where it gets good. They say, give glory to God. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. And he answered them, he said, whether, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. But here's his testimony. One thing I do know, I was blind. And now I see. It's as simple as that. And they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he tells them again exactly what happened. And he says this time, why do you want to know? Do you want to be his disciples? You seem to be very interested in him. Perhaps you want to be his disciples, they say, that he says to them. And they get offended and they say, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from, speaking of Jesus. And the man answered, why? This is an amazing thing. You can tell. It's like he's gotten some traction now. I don't know if you've ever been in an argument with someone. You know, it keeps going, it keeps going. You're like, all right, well, now I got something to say to you. So he says, well, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. We can all agree on that. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And now they not only have attacked Jesus, but now they attack him and they say, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us. And they cast him out. And moves from questioning to doubting to dismissal. And they cast him out of the temple. And it, it just strikes me as I think about this man's testimony. Of course, all that he knows right now is Jesus is a prophet and is from God and has changed his life. He was blind and now he sees. I, I, at this juncture, as we're about to see in verse 35, he has no full conception that Jesus could be the Messiah, that Jesus could be demonstrating divine power and his divine identity. All he knows is he was blind and now he sees. And But it reminds me, in many ways, when, when a person follows Jesus and Jesus begins to change your life, you can count on someone doubting that that's really what's taking place or even dismissing you because that's what you profess to be taking place. And it, it happens time and time again. But I, I love his testimony and the words he shares in verse 25 because there's one thing that nobody can take away from you. Nobody can take away from you what God has done in your life. No one can, can ultimately, at the end of the day, dismiss what God has done. I was blind, now I see. 
I know Jesus and He changed my life. That's the testimony of every person who's put their trust in Jesus. And, and no doubt the journey of following Jesus can be marked by, by struggles and, uh, and, and the, the need to continually turn away from temptations to sin and struggling to walk in obedience to God. But when God comes to us and, and, and we come to know Him and He changes us, our testimony is this simple. I once was blind. I once was lost. But now I see. Now I'm found. And that's what this man says. Despite all of the questioning, despite all of the doubting, despite all of the dismissing. And now at this point, not yet fully understanding who Jesus is, after bearing great testimony to what had happened, he's now put out. And the one who saw him in verse 1 goes and finds him in verse 35. Look at what it says in verse 35. Here's Here's the revelation. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And he went and found him. Having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? We've looked at that title. Son of Man was Jesus' preferred term uh, because it had both an aspect of of humanity, a term that was used often in reference to human beings, but in Daniel 7 and other places, it has this divine reference that the Son of Man will come uh, in power and in glory. Uh, And and it it, it avoided some of the, uh, the conceptions that people put on the idea of the Son of God or the Messiah. And so Jesus would often use it of himself. And he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered him and he said, sir, tell me who he is that I may believe in him. And Jesus said to him, you have seen him and he is speaking to you. And the man whose life was literally changed, who's, who was given eyes to see physically, now has eyes to see spiritually. And he says in verse 38, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. See, Jesus had healed him, but now he comes and he reveals to him that I am indeed the Son of Man. I'm the Savior. I'm the promised Messiah. The, the one Isaiah 35 talks about that only God could heal the blind, that only God could make uh, the uh, <clears throat> the the leper clean, that only God could make the, the mute speak, that only God could could heal our sickness. I am He, He says. And having experienced what He had experienced and already having trusted Jesus' Word to go wash in the pool of Siloam, He now looks upon the One who healed Him and who saw Him first. And He says, I believe. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, and those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And overhearing this, some of the Pharisees heard these things and they said to him, well, are we also blind then? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. I've thought about this passage because on one hand, at first glance, it sounds confusing with uh, the passage, in fact, that we looked at, that Pastor Chris spoke on a few weeks ago in John chapter 3. If you flip back a few um, pages in the Gospel of John, you'll come to John chapter 3. That familiar passage in verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And it goes on to say in verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Now, in verse 39, it says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. So it sounds like Jesus is saying two different things. But that's not what that's not what's happening. In fact, we see as we go on 
that the primary thing Jesus comes to do is indeed to save the world. But watch what happens in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world, but that people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. So the light of the world had shown up to the Pharisees this day in John chapter 9 and had healed this man, revealing the very divine power and identity of Jesus. And they looked at it and saw it and denied it and dismissed it. And they said, this can't be. And what Jesus says is the judgment that I bring into the world comes that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. See, what, what Jesus is ultimately going to say, the revelation that He shows is that what you need for salvation is that you need to know that you're needy. That's what we need. The only thing we can bring to our salvation is our sin, which makes us need, that which makes it necessary for us to be saved. Our neediness is what we bring. And to know that we're needy, but that those who think they're not needy are actually those who are blinded. The, the blind man literally was blind. He couldn't see. And in part because of his condition, he knew that he was needy. He was dependent. There wasn't a day that had gone by in his life where he hadn't sat on the side of the road perhaps and begged. Of his adult life, that is. He knew he was needy, not just physically, but ultimately spiritually. But those who are there questioning and doubting and dismissing, Jesus has a word from them. And the final conversation is a conversation or perhaps less of a conversation and more of a direct answer when Jesus says, when they ask Jesus, are we also blind? Jesus says, if you, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. If you truly didn't understand, if you truly didn't know, Jesus would say, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. I don't think Jesus is trying to say, like, if you, uh, if you don't know, then, then you don't have guilt. I think what he's trying to say is that because you've constructed in your mind, you think that you see things as they really are, if we're going to go with that, uh, then, then actually you're proving the point that you're blind. Because you say we see, your guilt remains. Because in your pride, you believe that you know right. And you dismiss the work of Jesus. You actually are blind yourself. And being blind, Jesus is ultimately saying you you're living in unbelief, and to pull from John chapter 3, to live in unbelief is to be condemned. We think about all the sins that Jesus condemns and, and all the sins that the Bible points out and, 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 and shows us that, that break the commands of God and break the heart of God. But at the end of the day, there's only one sin that if we remain in, and we don't turn away from, and we don't repent of, that will send us to an eternity separated from God. And that one sin is unbelief. That one sin is the the prideful rejection of who Jesus is and what He came to do. And that's how the story ends in John chapter 9. And I think there's one truth and one question that remains for us as we wrap up 
our time in this passage. <clears throat> the one truth that I want us to cling to as we look at John chapter 9 is that Jesus sees you. He sees you. I may not know everything that you're going through, that you've been through. But according to John chapter 9, I know someone who does. He sees you. He sees me. I couldn't help, as I thought about this passage, uh, Exodus chapter 3, you don't have to flip there, but Moses, as he's interacting with God at the burning bush, and God's about to call him and um, send him to be his messenger to deliver the people of Israel. Listen to what God says to the people of Israel in Exodus 3, verse 7. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of the taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. God sees, God hears, God knows, and God will deliver. Jesus sees. He sees the blind man. When the blind man couldn't see him, Jesus saw. And I think it's true as well in our own suffering or our own sickness or our own sorrow, our own trials, our own troubles. The number one thing we're tempted to believe in, that, that, in those moments when we walk through them is God doesn't see me. God doesn't know. And if He knows, He doesn't care. And yet, time and time again in the Gospels, we see Jesus sees. He sees this blind man when he couldn't see for himself. And seeing him, he acts on his behalf. He moves towards those who can't help themselves. He moves towards those who are in need. <clears throat> And the truth that we can take away that Jesus sees us is that no matter what we're going through, we can hold on to the, to the very same thing that Jesus told the disciples. We, we may not always understand the source or the reason for what we're going through, but we can always be assured that no matter what we're going through, God has a plan and a purpose in it. And what that tells us is in the suffering, in the trial, in the difficulty, in the circumstance that we find ourselves in, the greatest thing we actually need in the moment is to draw near to God, even when at times that's actually what we don't feel. We don't feel that we want to draw near to God because we don't feel that He's reciprocating, <laughs> being near to us in our suffering and in our trial. But because He sees the one thing and He knows, the one thing that we need to do is draw near to Him. Jesus sees you. And I, and I can't go without noting in John um, chapter 9 and verse 4, Jesus Jesus particularly has been sent by the Father to do the works of the Father. But notice it says we in verse 4. We must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. And I, I think the particular point that Jesus is making is that His disciples will actually join Him in this work while Jesus is on earth in His ministry. But it's also true, I think, when it comes to us today, following Jesus while it's today, this same language is picked up by the New Testament writers about working while it's day before the night comes. And while we can't replicate the miraculous healing that Jesus does, nor do we share uh, alongside the disciples in the same ministry that Jesus did while He was on earth, 
we too have been sent by Jesus. As the Father, John 21 says, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. And I think this is striking. In John 9, 5, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He says this in a number of different places. I am the light of the world. Do you know what Jesus tells the disciples and by extension us today as the church in Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16? He says, you are the light of the world. Well, which is it? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then he tells his disciples and his followers, you are the light of the world. We are the light of the world to the degree that we've believed upon and are trusting in the one who is truly the light of the world. And so what Jesus is telling his disciples, he reveals himself to be the light of the world who's come into the world, into the darkness, is shining the light, and those who believe come to the light, those who don't persist in the darkness. But Jesus says to his disciples, you are the light of the world. The city set on the hill can't be hidden. You don't light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, you put it on a stand to give light to all in the house. In the same way, verse 16 of, of Matthew 5, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We as God's people are to reflect this truth in the way that we live. That we live in such a way that we, we see others. We see others in their sickness. We see others in their sorrow. We see others in their suffering. Because we have a Savior who sees. Therefore, we have eyes to see. This week as we are serving the Hope Clinic, one of their uh, core values is a, a Zulu word. Uh, that I'm now going to not remember in this moment. But the, the word is the greeting, the Zulu word uh, for greeting, which means basically, I see you. I value you. <clears throat> the very same idea when we, we look at Jesus as He goes throughout His ministry repeatedly, whether it was Nicodemus who came to Him at night because he was afraid or ashamed, or the woman at the well who came to the well ashamed in the middle of the day. Not supposed to talk to a Jewish man. Not supposed to help him. Jesus says, I see you. To the blind man who couldn't have seen Jesus for himself, sees him. Us, in our pain, in our sorrow, in our confusion, in our hurt, sees us. And we as His people are the light of the world, bearing that light in the way that we serve others, letting our light shine before others that they may see our good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. Are we people who model Jesus in the way that we view others? Do we see others? Do we see people around us in the way that Jesus sees us? Jesus sees you. And the question is this, do you see Jesus? He sees us. Do you see Him? In our Jesus Kids Club, we've been using some catechism questions with our kids. And one of the questions is, can you see God? And the answer is, no, I can't see God but He always sees me. Do we see Him? Now, we, we can't see Him in the flesh like this blind man healed, eventually saw Jesus in the flesh, was looking in the face of the Messiah who healed Him. But what we can do, when Jesus uses the language of sight, it's connected to the language of belief. See, the blind man could see Jesus, but the Pharisees who had 20-20 sight, let's presume, couldn't see. You see, I, I think the number one reason people don't believe in Jesus, and, and hear me, there are a number of legitimate questions and, and issues that people may raise in terms of their journey of figuring out who Jesus is and what it means to follow Him. But at the end of the day, I think the number one reason 
we don't believe, that people reject Jesus. It's the same reason that the Pharisees do, and it's pride. It's that we think we've got it figured out. We think God couldn't be like that. God shouldn't do that. God wouldn't do that. It's not how I pictured God to be. It's not the God I want. I think God should have done this. And before long, we fashion God in our own image, according to our own likeness. When He's revealed Himself to us and graciously and mercifully sees us, and not only sees us, that's, that's encouraging. He sees us enough to, to help. He doesn't see the blind man as a theoretical problem. He actually heals him. He meets his need in a profound way. But in even a deeper way, the man who was blind, his greatest problem wasn't that he couldn't see physically. His greatest problem is that he didn't believe. Those two things shouldn't be driven apart, but nor should we shy away from pointing to this great under, undergirding reality of do we see Jesus for who He is, not for who we want Him to be. He's revealed Himself as the one whom God had promised, who has the power to deliver, and who in His grace and His mercy will not only heal this man, but will go to the cross on His behalf for His sin and will rise victoriously from the dead. See, Jesus' divine power was revealed in the healing of this blind man, but His divine power is even revealed in a greater way when on the third day Jesus rose from the dead. And there's, there's no question that as Jesus gets up from the dead, the only rightful response when we finally see Jesus for who He is is the same response that the blind man had when he says, Lord, I believe. It says that then he worshipped Him. All you need to know Jesus is to know that we are needy and that Jesus has everything that we need. And listen to me, believer. All you need to continually follow Jesus is to not be ashamed to say that you're needy and continually remind yourself that Jesus is all that you need. It's true for when we come to know Christ for the first time, and it's true for following Christ for all of time. And the same thing that keeps people from believing, pride, is the same thing that sometimes trips up believers along their journey of following Christ. It's pride. Jesus sees us, and that should humble us and cause us like this blind man to cry out and say, Lord, I believe. Pray with me.